you know, regarding the, the opportunity to uh, work with the homeless, Brian was talking about uh, the Truth Project, which was really uh, spearheaded by Clark Donald. Prayer with Jackie. So many, so many different things going on here at the bridge. I, I just want to say up front, I am so, uh, just so amazed and so blessed to watch how God causes the people to spread out and, and encourages the people to, to hear His call and to act on it and opens up opportunities for ministry. And we, we've never, uh, from day one at the bridge, we've never been about trying to force people into ministry boxes. It's really just been, you know, listen to what the Lord is telling you, get involved where the Lord is leading you. And to watch that happen is uh, such an incredible blessing. And so I just, I just praise God for that. Wednesday night, we finish book two of the Psalms. Five books in the Psalms. We've been talking about this over the last several weeks. And the second book, corresponding with the book of the, of the Exodus in the Torah, uh, we talked about that, the Psalms of Deliverances. But before we go on to Psalm uh, 73, which will be the Levitical Psalms, it begins in a whole new section of Psalms. Before we do that, this coming Wednesday night, I want to spend a little bit more time this morning on deliverance. I want to talk about deliverance one more time. I believe in the greatest sense of the word. So Psalm 68, beginning in verse 18. We've looked at this psalm, but let's take a closer look at just a few more verses here. Psalm 68, verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who goes on in His guilty deeds. Father, You are to us a God of deliverances. That's why we're here this morning, Lord. From the the person who was delivered decades ago and has just hung on your every word since, to the person who is desiring and hungering for and aching for deliverance this morning, we recognize, Lord, you are a God of deliverance. And we praise you and thank you that this aspect of your character also emerges in your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you will... Give us strength to walk through this morning's study. And Lord, along the way, help us to embrace your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Salag Luft III, the WW2 German POW camp, in the province of Lower Cilicia, might not really be known by very many people. In fact, uh, even today, if you went up and said, hey, you know about Stalag Luft III, don't you? Most people wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about, except for the valiant effort of men like Roger Bouchel. Roger Bouchel, who was there among a number of Royal Air Force pilots, he was a squadron leader, imprisoned there. And in 1943, this, this man named Bouchel, who was codenamed Big X which was short for Big Exit. He called a meeting of a group of men planning what would be known in history, you may have heard this phrase, as the Great Escape. The Great Escape. The idea was to get 200 men out by tunnel out of this POW camp in one night. 
And Big X gathered his escape committee and he challenged them with a plan that shocked them, but it highly motivated them as well. He, he spoke these words. He said, everyone here in this room is living on borrowed time. By rights, we should all be dead. He said, we are concentrating all our efforts on completing and escaping through one master tunnel. No private enterprise tunnels are allowed. Three deep, long tunnels will be dug, Bouchel commanded, and one will succeed. A year later, a tunnel codenamed Harry was finished. The two other tunnels they had problems with, ground freezing over to where they couldn't get one of the tunnels open. But Harry was ready, and it was just two feet in diameter. But check this out. To avoid detection, it was dug 30 feet underground. It ran a distance of 336 feet. And the project also included a huge underground workshop, an oxygen pump house, and staging posts all along the tunnel. On the night of March 24th and 25th, 1944, the Great Escape took place. It was only after the fact that the Germans realized how extensive this project had really been. They took an inventory of the camp and they discovered 4,000 bedboards had gone missing. (laughs) Along with 90 double bunk beds. 635 mattresses, 192 bed covers, 161 pillowcases, 52 20-man tables, 10 single tables, 34 chairs, 76 benches, 1,212 bed bolsters, 1,370 beating battens, 1,219 knives, 478 spoons, 582 uh, forks, 69 lamps, 246 water cans, 30 shovels, 1,000 feet of electric wire, 600 feet of rope, and 3,424 towels. In addition, 1,700 blankets have been used along with more than 1,400 large tin cans for the digging of this thing. In 1963, the story was made into a movie, the movie called The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen. It also inspired another loosely related sitcom, some of you may recall from childhood, Hogan's Heroes. The Great Escape. Now, I share that because I was thinking that another military man from another era wrote of another great escape. Not an elaborate dig-your-way-out-by-human-ingenuity escape. Rather, no tunnel system can provide exit from the prison that this military man talked about. An escape of epic proportions. For this military man said, To God the Lord belongs escapes from death. Death. Can't tunnel your way out of that one. There's no escape. If anyone understood escapes from death, however, it was David himself. As a youth, he escaped the jaws of a lion and the claws of a bear, apparently with his bare hands. I mean, don't miss the fact that David was a studly young man. 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 and 35 tell that story. And as a young man, he took down a giant. Some say a minimum of 9 feet 6 inches tall. 1 Samuel 17, 36 through 58 tells the story of David taking down Goliath. As a warrior, David claimed to have crushed entire troops of armies and even leapt over walls in a single bound. Somewhat of a superman. 2 Samuel 22, verse 30 talks about that. Even in David's senior years, 
He escaped death from Goliath's son, a giant named Ishvi Benob. 2 Samuel 21 details that story. So David knew something about escapes from death. And yet, for all these escapes, David always gave the credit to God. He always credited the Lord. He didn't credit his own ingenuity. He always knew that the strength by which he escaped was not his. It belonged to the Lord. You could call David one of the greatest escape artists of all history. But his escape was by God. Now, I've shared this. There are those out there who believe that Christians, especially those of you who believe in the rapture, you're just into escapism. That's what it really is about. It's just escapism. And I couldn't agree more. Who doesn't want to escape? Who doesn't want to get out of here and be in a better place? And David said in verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. But here's where I think we've missed it as we've gotten dull over the last 2,000 years. When we talk about salvation, we're not talking about salvation from a dull life. We're not talking about getting saved from a difficult job or a dreadful marriage or a deadly disease. Where eternity is concerned, all those things are completely insignificant. Salvation is an eternal issue. And we need to focus on it as such. We need to be aware, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we talk about salvation, it's not just getting a better life. It's about eternal life. And the stakes are huge. And the issue is massive. (coughs) Salvation is eternal. God is to us a God of deliverances, verse 20. And to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Now, Bible students, we learned just last week about the character of God. That He is not only by nature merciful and gracious, but He is also just. He is the righteous judge. And so going on in verse 21, David writes, Surely God will shatter the head of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who goes on in His guilty deeds. Last week we read these verses, Psalm 58, verses 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on earth. And yes, there is. But these topics of death, judgment, and what we're going to talk about this morning, hell, these topics, as serious as they are, tend to be ignored. Even in the church, we would rather talk about other things that are more exciting or more, or more joyful or easier to take. People make faulty assumptions about death and, and judgment and hell. People are apathetic toward them or just plain unaware of them, but the stakes, again, are eternally high. And of all people on the earth, Christians should be the most focused on the issues that are greatest, the issues of salvation and eternity, where we are going and where those who are around us are headed as well. So I'd like for us to join Jesus and talk about hell this morning for a few minutes. Join Jesus? Yeah, because Jesus talked about hell five times more than He talked about heaven. Five times more often, Jesus will refer to and talk about hell in the Scriptures than He talked about heaven. Why? Why? Because our God is a God of deliverances. And wants us to be absolutely clear about what we are being delivered from. Death, judgment, hell. 
Now, you might know this. Some say that hell is not real. It's not real. It's just a picture to try and motivate people to follow God and to give up their sinful ways. It's not an actual, literal place. Many within the realm of Christianity speak those words. Not a real place. What did Jesus say? Keep your finger in Psalm 68 and go over to Matthew chapter 5. Just so we can get a bead on Jesus' understanding, on Jesus' teaching about hell. Not an Old Testament perspective. Not a perspective of, of the ancient prophets, but Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ, who the world says, oh yeah, well Jesus is grace and loving and He's a good guy. Well, let's hear what He has to say about this. Matthew 5.22 I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Skip down to verse 29. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Skip on ahead to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10. Verse 28, Jesus speaking, says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Skip on to Matthew 13, verse 42. Matthew 13, 42. I'm going to start reading there in 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go on to chapter 18. Matthew 18 and verse 9. Again, Jesus, repeating Himself, says, If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. Now, if we were to take him literally, we would all be blind. But just understand, he's, he's making an important point. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Matthew 24, verse 45. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave who his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will be put in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let me just ask you, does it sound like Jesus believed in a literal hell. That perhaps Jesus was aware of an actual place called hell. Now some say hell is not real. There are others who say hell is not eternal. What did Jesus say? Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23 verse 33. 
And this is an area where, as Christians, it gets difficult for us. This is where the debate begins to intensify. Okay, Pastor Rick, I might accept that there's a hell of sorts, but an eternal place of punishment and pain and, and all I just I don't know about that. Verse 33, Matthew 23. Jesus says to the Pharisees, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence, he says, the sentence of hell? So hell is a sentence. Matthew 25.46, go over there. Speaking of those who are judged among the nations, Jesus says in verse 46, these will go away into eternal, note the word, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Greek word for eternal there is Ionios. Ionios is literally, it means beyond the vanishing point. Beyond time, beyond space, beyond all things. This is the word the Greeks used to express an unending situation. Something that's far beyond what can be counted or conceived of. That which is never to end. Jesus says there is an eternal punishment. And I think we can close the book on whether or not hell is real. And I think it's pretty obvious, at least from Jesus' perspective, on whether or not hell is eternal. But notice what Jesus also said about this eternity. He says the righteous will go into eternal life. Eternal life. However long eternal life will be, that's how long eternal punishment will be. It's not one without the other. If there's no eternal punishment in hell, my friends, there is no eternal life in heaven either. Same word is used by Jesus. Oh, Rick, I I don't want to hear that. A real place of eternal damnation, that just can't be right. That, that, That just can't be fair. Remember what we said last Sunday. If it is righteous for God to do it, it is right for us to rejoice in it. But, but... But why would a loving God create a hell to send people to? And the answer very simply is He didn't. He did not create a hell to send people to. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus described hell as the eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why hell was created. That's why that place of punishment exists. For the devil and his angels. And God said in Ezekiel 18.32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Why does God talk so much about hell? Because He doesn't want us to go there. Because He wants us to be absolutely certain and aware. Yes, there is a place. Yes, it is eternal. No, it was not created for you. Therefore, repent. Turn to Me and live. That you might live eternally. Hell was not created for you. It was not created for me. But as Jesus so clearly taught and so lovingly warns, deny God and there is no alternative. Now I want to look closer at this. In Luke's Gospel, you can turn over there, Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus gives a fascinating teaching. It's often called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And and in this teaching... Jesus gives the most specific insight into death that had been given up to that point. No one had said what Jesus was saying with such clarity and explanation about what happens when you die. 
The prophets hadn't even done this. When the prophets referred to death, they referred to Sheol, the holding place. And that's all they really knew and all they could really express. David was the one who said, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. And so I'm, I'm sure, Lord, I'm not going to be left in the place of the dead. But beyond that, what was the place of the dead like? What did it look like? Jesus comes along and he begins to describe it in Luke 16. And by the way, I said it's often called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But I don't think that's accurate. I don't believe that it is a parable at all. I think this is an, a teaching by Jesus of something that actually happened, actually occurred. And he's explaining it. Now, why would you say that? Well, a couple of things about Jesus' parables, just by way of background. Jesus always identifies his parables as parables. You note this, the parables of Jesus, he always says, this is a story or this is a parable. He always gives an an insight or an indication, this is a story I'm now telling you. Secondly, and by the way, there's no indication that this story is fictional whatsoever. He doesn't do that with this teaching. But secondly, in Jesus' parables, he never names the characters. In this story, he names a poor man named Lazarus, and he specifically names Abraham in the story itself. He speaks of real people, I believe, in a real situation. Follow it through with me, verse 19. Luke 16, 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The rich man who, I don't know, was perhaps the artist formerly known as Prince. I'm not sure. He's wearing purple. Verse 20, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming, and they were licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, now Jesus is tapping in here. Hades, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Sheol, place of the dead. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. Now understand this. Jesus' description here is a pre-crucifixion pre-redemption example of the waiting place of the dead. He's talking about this is what it's like prior to his crucifixion. What David and the prophets called Sheol. Until redemption was purchased by Jesus in his death. Now this is where the spirits of all people who died would go. To Hades, to Sheol. Everybody who died up to the point of Jesus' crucifixion, that's where they went. Listen to Abraham's description of this place. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may also warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. Hey, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, 
or to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now a couple things to note here. Jesus expresses the key to belief. The key to belief, understand this, in this age or any other age, the key to belief is not miracles, it's not healings, it's not even raising from the dead. This is not what brings a person to faith. What is? Moses and the prophets. In other words, the Word of God. It's hearing the Word of God that brings a person to faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. That's where it emerges. And we need to be aware of that. I am not opposed to miracles. I am not opposed to the supernatural work of God in this age. I'm not opposed to the idea of raisings from the dead. But what I'm opposed to is saying, if we could just have more of that here, then we would see more people saved. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, Jesus says, they are not going to listen. They are not going to be saved. Remember a man named Lazarus did rise from the dead? Not this Lazarus, I don't believe. And the reason is the description back in verses 20 and 21 of a, of a very poor man who was sick and laid at the gate with sores. And that, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with the Lazarus who was Jesus' friend. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, another Lazarus, his friend. And you know what the haters of Jesus plotted to do after Lazarus was raised from the dead? They plotted to kill him. Not Jesus. Well, they were always plotting to kill Jesus. They plotted to kill Lazarus too. To put this proof out of the picture. John 12.10 The chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Those Jews who were believing in Jesus because Lazarus was raised from the dead were listening to Moses and the prophets. The leaders of the people were not listening. And therefore, even though they saw with their own eyes this man Lazarus raised from the dead, they still wanted to kill him again. They wanted him out of the picture. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, Jesus says even a resurrection will not persuade them. And Jesus' own resurrection did not persuade them. But in this teaching, Jesus describes a literal place known as Hades, Sheol, the place of the dead, with a torment side and a paradise side and a gulf or a chasm in between. And he describes this as an actual place, and I believe a real place, that this is the picture of Sheol. That everyone who ever died prior to the cross, going back in history from the beginning of man all the way up to the crucifixion, everyone who ever died went to Sheol. And they went to one side or the other, to the paradise side or to the torment side, based on where they were at when they died. Did they die in faith in God? Like Abraham, who we see on the paradise side. Or did they die denying God, like the rich man, who we see on the torment side? Well, pastor, is that still the way it is? Go back to the psalm. Back to Psalm 18. In fact, while you're doing that, we're jumping around a bit this morning. Keep your finger in Psalm 18 and open up Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to go back and forth between these two for a few minutes. So keep your finger kind of, you can keep it open there. So you can flip back and forth. Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4. Psalm 68, 18. One of the hinge verses in all of Scripture. Listen to what David, the prophet, wrote. You have ascended on high. You have led captive captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
Paul reaches back to Psalm 68 to draw out this powerful truth and to explain something of our great escape, of the real great escape, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me pause and just say something here. I mentioned as we begin, began the teaching that I love to see how people are just spreading out, called by God, not because Pastor Rick or because a shepherd or because anyone else said, hey, we need you in our ministry, but because they're being led by the Holy Spirit. Listen, each one of us have been given a measure of His grace, a measure of giftedness to do what He's called us to do. And there's not a single thing that anyone in this fellowship or any fellowship does that is less important if it is done by the calling of the Spirit of God. I'll give you a comparison. Brian's going to take a group up to, to serve the homeless uh, in Bellingham in October. Jackie meets with a group of women to pray here on a Saturday morning. Which is more important? How ridiculous a question. Both are serving out of the calling, and that's what we do. Don't compare where you are with where someone else is. You listen to the Lord, and you do what He's gifted you to do, and the church, as a fellowship, as a body, will grow and will succeed in the manner for which God wants it to succeed. That's how it works. And it's not by trying to be like someone else or do what someone else... His ministry is huge and amazing. I want to do that. Well, if God's calling you, fantastic. If He's not, do what He's called you to do. He has gifted you... Brothers, He has gifted you, sisters, to a specific calling. What is that calling? You need to ask Him about that. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. But He goes on, He says, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, He ascended, Paul writes, what does it mean except that He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? doesn't mean Jesus was spelunking you know, or cave-dwelling. He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. Roger Bouchel, Big X, has nothing on Jesus Christ. For this is the great escape. The great escape that at the point of His crucifixion, remember, death and Sheol, how Jesus described it, was that way all the way up until His crucifixion. But something happened in those three days. That Paul describes, he opens a window into these things that is fantastic. During those three days, Jesus descended and led captive a host of captives. He led out captives. He drew out of that place those who are captive in that place. Follow this through. Number one, Jesus, three things to note about these two sections here. Jesus who ascended, first descended to Sheol. First went down before He ascended. Why? To lead captive a host of captives. Psalm 18, beginning of the verse, you have ascended on high and you have led captive your captives. Not your captives. That that sounds like Jesus captured somebody and the word your is, is inserted there. You have just led captive captives. You've grabbed hold of them. You've pulled them out. You've saved them. Remember, our God is a God of deliverances. You have led out. And verse 9 again in Ephesians, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean also, uh, except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth. For those in the paradise side of Hades, even in the paradise side, there's a sense of being captive. It was awaiting. Yeah, it's paradise, but it's not presence. Understand that. 
It was paradise, but it's paradise away from the presence of God. Not quite to the presence of God. What were these people waiting for? Redemption. Waiting for the work of the cross. And we, similar, we, though in the church, though we have wonderful times of worship, and and it almost feels like paradise sometimes when our fellowship is good and glorious and we're praising God, but we're captives and waiting right now. doesn't matter how good your life may seem in the moment, you're still a captive in waiting. Romans 8.23, Paul said, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Well, but I thought we were redeemed. We are. But we haven't experienced the full weight of that redemption yet. We know we're redeemed. We know we're saved. We know in Jesus Christ we have a place being prepared. We're going to go home. But we haven't felt it yet. Haven't experienced it. We're waiting for that complete redemption, that ultimate redemption of our body. I was asked on, uh, on Facebook, actually, by uh, someone who is, is not at the bridge right now, had moved away, but she was asking the question just about this whole idea of, of when we get caught up and when we, when we get glorified. And then there's this millennial kingdom, and she said, can we, if we come back for this millennial kingdom, it, we'll, can we die and, and sin again and lose the whole thing? No. Because once you've experienced the redemption of your body, your, your glorified self, you will be like Jesus, the Bible tells us. And you'll be with Him from that point on. It's a done deal from then forward. And that's wonderful news. But we're waiting for that. So can you imagine the shout of joy that went up from the paradise side of Hades when Jesus appears to lead out all those who have been so long waiting for the redemption that was promised? Can you imagine the dismay on the other side of the chasm? of those who are aware of what was going on. In the glorious escape, I believe that Jesus effectively shut down the paradise side of Sheol, of Hades. And this is the difference. Before the cross, paradise and torment and a chasm. Jesus brings about redemption on the cross. Jesus goes, as Paul writes, descends into the lower parts, descends there, leaves out captivity captivity captive, a host of captives, pulls them out, saves them, shuts down. No more need for the paradise side of Hades. What exactly are you saying? Listen, the spirits who died in faith in God, be it Abraham or David or Lazarus or Peter or Paul or my grandmother... Anyone who died in faith in God now at this point, and this is the new arrangement of things until He calls us home, their spirits go directly to be with Him. The spirit goes home immediately. Well, how do you know that? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.6, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We're absent from the Lord. We have His Holy Spirit, but we are absent in in the most real sense of the word, from the Lord. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And so now, since the cross, when a body dies in faith in Jesus Christ, though the body goes directly into the grave, the Spirit goes directly to be with Jesus. Do you understand that? When you die, your body may, you know, slump and go into the ground. But your spirit, your spirit goes to be with God. How is that possible? Redemption. Now the body has not been raised up and glorified yet. 
But the Spirit goes to be with Jesus. What about those who die outside of faith in Christ? I know we don't like to think about this, but we have to. Those who die outside of faith in Christ, their spirits are still there waiting for their day in court. Revelation 20, verse 13. Says the dead gave up, or the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And that's the final judgment. Not of those who died in faith, not of those who were saved by grace, but of those who would be judged by their deeds, not by Jesus' work on the cross. And that judgment is coming, and to begin that judgment, all those will be given up by death and Hades. In other words, That waiting place is still there, at least one side of it is. Jesus, who ascended, also descended, that He might lead out those who died in faith. Secondly, Jesus, who ascended, note this, gave gifts to men. Now what's interesting is the Spirit inspired Paul to alter some words here. If you look in verse 18 of Psalm 68, it reads, You ascended on high, you led your captive captives, you have received gifts among men. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Why the difference? Because David is writing about David. At least in the historical sense. About his life. That David ascended. David ascended where? To, to Jerusalem. When he conquered Jerusalem. Conquered Jebus. And he ascended and after that great conquering you know, he received gifts. Yeah, the king, the, the, the warrior. He won, and so all the booty from that battle, David receives that. However, Jesus, when he ascended, did the exact opposite. He gave gifts. What gifts? Well, we mentioned those. A variety of gifts. Different gifts for different people. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts that the Lord gives to His people. And what's the greatest gift? By the way, what, is the, what do you think is the greatest gift in spiritual gifts? Love. Love. 1 Corinthians 12 details the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, I will show you a more excellent way. And then he begins to talk about love. Because without the context of love, of, of love the spiritual gifts go to our head. Without the context of love, the spiritual gifts start to be about us. Listen, the spiritual gifts are never about us. The spiritual gifts that we are given are always about serving in the body or witnessing in the world. That's why God gives them. Not so that we can be puffed up and impressive and self-righteous. Love is the key to the spiritual gifts working. However, I would have to disagree. I do not believe the greatest gift is love. Well, what is it then? John 14, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. I think the greatest gift is His Spirit with us. We wouldn't even have use of the spiritual gifts if we didn't have the Holy Spirit showing us how. And present with us. The greatest gift that we have been given in this day on the earth, when we give our lives to Jesus, is He gives His Spirit to us. Amazing. He says the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive because it does not see Him nor know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
And so again, we have the spiritual gifts in the context of love to serve with and to minister with to the body of Christ. But greater still, we have the present Spirit of Christ. And there's an amazing comfort there. Notice that Abraham was comforted, or, or the Lazarus, the poor man Lazarus, was comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And in the same way, you and I, as we walk in faith in Christ, we are comforted in the Spirit of God while we wait. We have His Spirit. Romans 8.16 tells us the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. That's how we sing the song we sang this morning. We will stand as children of the promise. We're children of God. And we know we are. Why? Because His Spirit tells us we are. And my friends, we're going to be glorified with Him. If children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. And that's what I would call the glorious escape. The great escape happened when Jesus busted open that paradise side of Sheol and took captivity captive, let out a host of people who died in faith, brought their spirits to be at home with the Lord. That was a great escape. But there's a greater a more glorious escape to come. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead, that is the corpses, note that, the dead in Christ will rise. The corpses will go up. Why will they go up? Because the spirits are already with Him. So the dead in Christ, nekros is the word in the Greek, will rise. And Paul already said that the Lord will bring with Him the souls, the spirits of those who have fallen asleep And in that moment, there will be an amazing glorification. And then he says, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There's our comfort. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge that if we die, our spirit goes home to be with the Lord. If we live and Jesus comes, we will be caught up. Body and spirit, glorified to be with Him, the glorious escape. Christian escapism, you bet it is. And I can't wait for it. Psalm 68, verse 18, continuing. Note this, this is amazing to me. Because Paul doesn't quote this part of the verse, but we need to see it. Even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. What? Note this. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Again, David is speaking historically, but prophetically this goes to something amazing. Jesus who ascended, also descended into the lower parts of earth. But when He ascended, He gave gifts to men, listen, even among the rebellious. What does that mean? After David's ascension to Jerusalem, even the rebellious offered him gifts. Even those who were rebellious there, because they recognized his, his power, his authority, and so they just bowed down and, you know, they, they weren't happy about it, but they offered gifts to him. After Jesus' ascension, even the rebellious, note this, even the rebellious are blessed by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't think I'm being heretical, just stay with me. I'm not saying non believers get gifted. What I'm saying is they get blessed by the giftedness of believers. That the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world, the gifts given to you and given to me in the world today, encourages love 
and mercy and compassion. Right now, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church stems the tide of evil, and the entire world is blessed by that, gang. Don't be discouraged. We live in a time where the world is pushing back against Christianity. And you might think, man, are we just a scourge to the world? Are we just a curse to the people of the world? The world has no idea. And sometimes I think we Christians forget the blessing that our presence, when we're Spirit-filled, the blessing that we may be to the world round about. The fact that we are empowered to love. The fact that we are opposing all manner of evil. Evil must be opposed. Can you imagine what it will be like after the church is pulled out? And there is no opposition to evil on planet Earth. How bad will things be? But right now, there's something amazing going on. The spiritual gifts given to believers, again, are not for us to wow each other with. They are for compassionate service, and they are also for powerful witnessing that we might change the course of the world, that we might change this region right here around us. Man, if, if, if we keep showing up here in the barn for our own edification, for our own education, for our own exaltation, we're of no value in the kingdom. If it's just about what goes on here on Sunday mornings, gang, we are missing it. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to be empowered to go. We have been given grace to preach the glorious escape. To let the world know, to let friends, family members, those close to us know. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. And you know what happened immediately after that? Jesus ascended. He gave gifts to men. You will receive. And then He ascended. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles. And the world has never been the same. Don't be discouraged when the world is so anti the church. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. You still are here for the good of the gospel and to bring the truth. Now, I asked a question Wednesday night, and I'll ask it again. Anyone feeling old? (laughs) The church. The church is 2,000 years old. That is an old man. The church has been around a long time. And the days are growing shorter, and not just because it's autumn. And the nights seem to be longer, and time, gang, time is running out. And the world is getting old. And in Psalm 71, we read the prayer of an old man for deliverance. I joked about this Wednesday, and and in a posting last week, that uh, it was funny to me. On my birthday, I'm studying for Wednesday night, and I open up to Psalm 71, the prayer of an old man for deliverance. Thanks for that, Lord. But we hear out of this prayer of the old man, it's not just a prayer of an old man. It is the heart cry of the church, of an old, of an aging church in our final hours as the end is fast approaching. Listen to this, Psalm 71, verse 18. It reads, Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare Your strength to this generation, Your power to all who are to come. I have a role to play. I might be tired. I might be feeling old. I might look at the church and say, wow, 2,000 years. And and it seems like we're, we're doing less in the world now than ever before. Is that true? And we can let the whole aging process really get us down. Or we can say, as long as I'm here, 
I will preach grace for the glorious escape to this generation. As long as I have breath, Lord, every breath I use will be to glorify You. Everything I say will be about the kingdom and I will be about the business of trying to bring people into that place of escape rather than just hoarding it for myself. I believe verse 18 of Psalm 71 is both the mission of the senior saint and of all saints in this old church as the final hour is fast approaching. Why are we still here? I ask that from time to time. Why am I still here, Lord? And the answer is the same, because you're not done. Because the job that I've called you to is unfinished, and I want you to finish your calling. I want you to finish your work. Do what you have been empowered by my Spirit to do in this world. Because the day is coming when I'm going to pull you out. Our primary purpose, gang, on this earth second only to worshiping God and glorifying Him is to preach grace for the great escape, for the glorious escape. That's why we're here. And it is not about us. This morning's teaching, as we look at it, is directed to those who do not believe in hell. And to my non-Christian friends, I would say, please understand that hell is real, that hell is eternal, but that hell is not for you. It is not God's desire for you to end up there. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Hand it over to Him. Accept His Lordship. Allow Him to lead you out of here gloriously in a great escape. For our God is to us a God of deliverances and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. But this morning's teaching, gang, is also directed at those Christians who do not believe in hell. In two ways. Not just theologically. There are those who theologically don't believe that there's a hell. And and I have to say to those people, you cannot accept Jesus and reject His words on hell. If you believe Jesus is who He said He was, if you believe Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, then you cannot look any other way at hell but that it is a real place because Jesus taught and believed it was real. So theologically, I don't even think we have a discussion, but personally, personally, and this is a concern of mine, if we say we believe in a literal hell, why are we so silent on the topic? Why aren't we willing to to share that truth. Dr. Del Tackett in The Truth Project asks this provocative question. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? And sometimes I wonder, and I see it in my life, I'm not trying to judge anybody else, but I wonder, we wander along saying we have this great and grand and wonderful belief, but does it impact our behavior? Does it impact our actions? If it doesn't, then you've got to question if we really have that belief at all. If I truly believe what we've talked about this morning, hell is real, hell is eternal, hell is torment, if I believe all of that, should it not impact my daily life? How I behave toward those around me who have no idea that right now they're going to hell? Uh, shouldn't it make a difference? 
Jesus intentionally taught the reality of hell. I know it's a hard reality. I know we don't want to face it. But neither ignorance nor apathy, gang, have any place in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, by all appearances, it seems like most don't believe in a literal hell. It's Ray Comfort's example that Niccolo shared with me last week. Of a blind man walking toward a cliff. And it's a hot day and he's parched and thirsty. And so you run up to him, good Christian that you are, and you hand him a cup of cold water and he drinks it. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Godspeed. And he's still headed for the cliff. What difference have we made? Well, I served in this world. He's headed for the cliff. We made a difference. I didn't share this last week. I'll share it right now. I know a, a, a pastor who was talking about a pastor from Africa who came to America and was begging American Christians to stop helping with the AIDS epidemic. What? Why? Because from his understanding as an African, he was saying, because right now the AIDS epidemic is the only thing that is forcing African men especially to reevaluate their sexual immorality. And you guys are coming over here and you're giving medicine and treatment and helping it to go away. Great, so we've saved their lives from AIDS. And they're still walking toward the cliff. If we believe what we say we believe, it should change everything. We have this increasingly active body here at the bridge and I, I marvel at that. But in all our activity, we've got to pause and take inventory. What have we been using for the tunnel system? How much of our effort has gone into the great escape, toward the great escape? For an entire year, those guys built and dug and lifted things out of the camp all over because they had one mission, one goal, the great escape. Get as many men out as possible. And I'm going to ask the hard question. How many people this year have been saved through the ministry of the Bridge Christian Fellowship? I'm not asking how many people have been coming to the Bridge. How many people went from lost to saved this year because this church fellowship is here? And why isn't it hundreds? Is it because, myself and all of us, is it because we really don't fully buy Or maybe we do fully believe that there's an actual literal hell, but we just don't want to think about it. I don't want to, you know, the the holidays are coming up, and I don't want to go spend time with family thinking about some of them may be lost. Okay. Merry Christmas as they head toward the cliff. We have got to face this. What would our church fellowship look like if we all, to a person, accepted? that these stakes are high, like Jesus talked about? What would our personal lives look like if we got up in the morning and said, this friend of mine who has rejected every advance I've made toward him about the gospel is still not saved. What am I going to do about it? Oh, but Rick, so many people will be offended. They may be. You think the blind man would be offended if you tried to push him off his path? Not seeing that he's headed for the cliff. He has no idea. You're trying to redirect him. No, I want to go this way. Yeah, but you don't see what I see. No, I want to go this way. So you say, okay, have a nice life. (laughs) How many of us want to see our children in heaven? 
How many of us want to see a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother or a close friend saved? Now I know what happens. When we start to talk this way, there are many who start thinking about those who have already died. You can't. They are in the hands of a merciful God. You go back there and you will be stunted to think about those who are living right now. Our focus is on those who are alive and are lost. Because we can do something about that. And we've got to, I know this can be painful to consider, but we have to consider it. On that wintry night in 1943, Roger Bushell declared, everyone in this room is living on borrowed time. And then he said, we should be all, by all rights, we should be dead. And the goal of that escape committee was to get 200 men out. 200 men of the 600 RAF pilots that were there in the camp, 200 out on one night. 76 made it out. Of the 76 that made it out, 73 were captured. Of the 73 captured, 50 were summarily executed by the Gestapo. Great escape. It wasn't that great an escape, honestly. I mean, it was an impressive attempt. But only three men actually got all the way home out of the entire group. Let me end on a positive note. In Jesus Christ, everyone gets out. In Jesus Christ, the glorious escape is for everyone. There is not a single person who is going to be recaptured. Not a single person who is not going to make it. In Jesus Christ. That is the glorious escape. And and John wrote, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And if you question that, brother and sister, man, turn to the Spirit and say, You need to testify here. If you have the Son, you have the life. And so Jesus said in Luke 21.36, Keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus preached escapism by the power of the delivering God. You see, it's not just that we escape from hell. The good news is that we escape to our Father's house. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you believe Him? I want to ask you to consider these things this morning and to take a good hard look at your life and your influence and I want to pray together for a couple of things first of all if if you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior Or if you're in a place this morning where perhaps you have been distant from Him and you desire passionately to be led by Him again to walk in relationship with Him, then I just want want to ask you to raise your hand. Great, several of you. 
Would you all, who have raised your hand, just pray in your heart with me, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, be my Lord. Lord, forgive my straying and bring me back into relationship with You. Lord, I long for the gift of Your presence, of Your Spirit. I long for the knowledge of salvation. And I ask this morning, as I confess with my mouth, Jesus, that You rose from the dead, as I believe in my heart, I ask that You will assure me of salvation today. I want to be led by You. Save me, Jesus. Now let me ask those of you who have a friend or a family member or a loved one who right now you know that if Jesus were to come today they would not be saved. Would you raise your hand? Almost every person in the room. Lord Jesus, we cry out for these people who are on our hearts right now. And even as I pray, brothers and sisters, would you just softly whisper their names to Jesus? Lord, we pray for these. We ask for their salvation. And we ask for a part in this, Lord. We ask that we would have divine appointment, divine opportunity, and divine words to speak into the lives of those we care so much for. That we would not just sit idly by while lives are lost. God, I just pray, empower this fellowship with Your Spirit to to change this, this area. Not, Lord, so we can be bigger, but so that Your kingdom will grow. And we thank You for every individual person who has been saved. But, Lord, we ask that You will compel us by Your love to share the most important and most loving thing we can share, and that's that Jesus is Lord. Make us bold, Father. Fill our hearts, our lives with boldness for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ until you come. Father, remove our idleness and replace it with an intensity to follow hard after you. For God, we know you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen.